Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. So it's the second church in the series of the seven churches. This is our third sermon in the series of Revelation. The first sermon was on uh, kind of the picture of the glorified Jesus out of chapter 1. And then last week we looked at the church at Ephesus. And then this week we're looking at the next church, the church at Smyrna. Jesus' letter to this church, to this church in a town called Smyrna. So we're going to be reading Revelation chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 8 through 11. Here we go. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father in heaven, we thank you, Jesus, that you stand among the churches, that you are among us, that you hold um, the angel of the churches in your right hand. You hold the leadership. You hold us, God. Father, we are thankful, Jesus, that you are glorious in every way. You are mighty. You're everything that we need. And Father, I pray that you would enable us, equip us through your word this morning. God, equip us to be faithful unto death. Father, so many times it's hard for us to be faithful unto irritation or faithful unto to discouragement or faithful unto depression or faithful unto hard circumstances. But God, we pray that you would so put in us a glimpse of your glory and your faithfulness and your greatness that we would be faithful unto death. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was at the Gospel Coalition this uh, past week, and uh, I went by the, um, uh, one of the booths, the Alliance Defense Fund, to get some stuff for our church. And uh, they, were, uh, they were letting you sign up for $500 gift certificates to the bookstore, and I did so because I was just being nice and because they asked me to because I never win anything. There were 6,000 people there. I thought, what's the chances that I would win? I won. And so I got new books, and so here is a new book I've been reading about, the book of Revelation, and I want to read you a story of a uh, young slave girl named Blandina. This is around AD 177. Eusebius, who's a famous historian, is writing this account. Blandina was filled with such power that she was released and rescued from those who took turns in torturing her in every way from morning until evening, and they themselves confessed that they were beaten. For they had nothing left to do to her, and they marveled that she still remained alive, seeing that her whole body was broken and opened, and they testified that any one of these tortures was sufficient to destroy life, even when they had not been magnified and multiplied as they were. But the blessed woman, like a noble athlete, kept gaining in vigor in her confession and found comfort and rest and freedom from pain from what was being done to her by saying, I am a Christian woman and nothing wicked happens among us. 
when Blandina finally perished. Eusebius describes her as glad at her departure, as though invited to a marriage feast rather than cast to the beasts. And the heathens themselves confessed that never before among them had a woman suffered so much and for so long. Ever since my children were little, preschool, and we were traveling to school, we recite uh, verses together, and one of those verses that is probably the anchor, it's like the verse that we always do no matter what, is Psalm 63.3. And Psalm 63.3 says simply this, Because your steadfast love is better than life, so my lips will praise you. Now, a lot of times, because uh, verses get r- repetitious, and, you know, the kids are like, you know, and so uh, we'll stop and say, okay, guys, okay, what, what, what's that verse saying? It's saying that, that Jesus' love is better than life. Now, now, what's in our life? What is life, you know, what, tell, tell me about the things in your life, you know. So Jesus' love is better than ice cream, it's better than, you know, camping, it's better than mountain biking, it's better than, you know, story time, it's better than this, better than that, and what we're going to go through, better than Disney World, right? God's love is better than that. But here's the reality. For some dads and some children, the application is not his love is better than Disney World, it's his love is better than living another day. Literally, than life. Then another sunrise, another sunset, another supper with the family. Jesus' love is better than life. And there's a long line of people in the history of the church that have said with their blood, Jesus' love is better than life. If you'll notice, Jesus' letter to this church has no condemnation. Okay, So last week we looked at the church at Ephesus, a great church. A working church, a faithful church, a, a church who's, who's serving, a church who's protecting their doctrine, they're, 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 they're protecting their truth, they're, they're a doctrinally sound church, but, Jesus said, after commending them for those things, but, but, you've left your first love, you don't love me like you used to, your heart is not stirred to affection for me, you don't love other people like, like you used to. And therefore, Jesus condemns them and says, repent, remember, repent, return, do the deeds you did at first. If not, I'm going to take your lampstand away. Okay? But as he writes to Smyrna, Smyrna is one of two churches in the seven. They get, they get no rebuke. There's no chastening. There's no correcting word. But what there is in this letter is the promise that they will soon suffer greatly. They're suffering now, and, and it's going to get worse. Now, I want you to put those two together, okay? There's no correction, no rebuke. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, like he said to Ephesus, man, you've left your first love. As he's going to say to Thyatira and Pergamon, Sardis, man, you guys are messed up, you know? There's none of that. So this is a great church, faithful. There's no rebuke, no correction. And yet, Jesus says, you're about to suffer. Now, I want to pause there because, again, I think we're kind of hardwired to think if things are tough in our life, what do we think? God's mad at me, right? If things are going difficult, if our health breaks, if, if, if our job is tough, if people don't like us, if we get slandered, our, our, our tendency is to say, man, God, you, what have you done? You've let me down. You, you don't love me. Are you mad at me? What did I do wrong? 
Now, and, and agreed. We, we, we went over all this in Job, remember, just, just a, a month or so ago. Agreed, sin has consequences, right? We're all, we're all familiar with that principle. Sin has real consequences in our lives. However, not all suffering is the consequence of sin. And in, in the case of the church of Smyrna, we, we seem to see an example that indeed their suffering was not because of sin. It was for other reasons. Okay? Now, what you're going to find in each one of these letters, we found this last week in Ephesus, you're going to find them in all seven, is that Jesus reveals part of who he is in each one of the letters. Okay? Now, so in chapter 1 of Revelation, if you're here on Easter Sunday, we saw the whole picture, didn't we? You know, verse 14, chapter 1, his hairs white like wool, white as snow, his eyes a blaze of fire, feet burnished bronze, you know, voice like the roar of many waters. He holds the churches in his, in his right hand, uh, face shining like the sun, uh, first and the last, living one, live forevermore. We got the whole picture of Jesus. And now, in each one of the churches, as Jesus introduces himself. So I'm writing to the church of Smyrna, and then this is who's writing, Jesus. And then he, he introduces, again, part of who he is. And so, there's a couple lessons from this. Number one, we need to look at Jesus. <laughs> okay? Uh, what do you got going on today in your life? You, you, you're sick, you're tired, you're depressed, you're discouraged, you're on top of the world. Doesn't matter. What you need, just like what Job needed in Job 38 at the end of all his trials, what he needed, the same thing you and I need, we need to see the character and the glory of Jesus. So in each one of these letters, okay, Jesus, as he's, as he's speaking to these churches, he says, what you need is to know who I am. You need, you need to see me. You need to look at me. You, you need to know who I am, okay? But, but I want you to ask the question, why, why does he reveal himself in the way that he does to each of these churches. So to Smyrna, here's what he says, verse 8, I'm the first and the last who died and came to life. He didn't say that to Ephesus. So why, why Smyrna? Why does Smyrna need to know that Jesus is the first and the last, that he died and he's come back to life? Well, let's look at, the, let's look at what this church is going through, okay? What they're going through, what they're going to go through. Okay, first of all, they're a persecuted church. Verse 9, I know your tribulation, Okay, they've got hard things in their life. They're being persecuted. Now, why were they being persecuted? Well, Smyrna was a uh, hotbed for emperor worship, okay? There's all kinds of gods that are being worshipped in, in the towns that, that John writes to. Most all of them had part of the Roman pantheon. They may have had a temple to Zeus or Aphrodite or, or Sybil or, you know, all, all of these false gods, okay? But Smyrna not only had all of that, they also had a temple to the emperor, okay? How would you like for your government? to be God. We, we, huh? I mean, talk about a sorry God, you know? But that, that's, they worship their emperor, okay? And part of being a citizen at Smyrna was you would come, whenever they had the, 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 their worship times, you would come and you would offer incense, a sprinkle of incense into the fire in front of the, 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 the statue of, of the emperor, and you would say, Caesar is Lord. That would be your tribute. And every patriotic Smyrnan citizen would do that. Except the Christians. And they were persecuted from it. That's why it says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich in the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, the Jews had, had combined with the government there to persecute the Christians. They were turning in the Christians for not, not saying Caesar is Lord. This is a slandered church. Verse 9, 
I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews or not. Have you ever been slandered? Huh? Have you ever had people say things about you that were not true? Have you ever had people cut you down uh, intentionally? They're hurting you with their words. Well, this church was being slandered. They were living out their faith. Okay, They're following Jesus. They're loving Jesus. They're loving their neighbor. And they're having the people of their community say, You are haters. You're hateful. You're unpatriotic. You're hurting our community. You're bad for us. They were being slandered. This is a poverty-afflicted church. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Okay? And why are they poor? Were, were they bad business owners? Made some bad investments? Everybody in the Smyrna church invested in Enron and it went down and so now they're all busted. Are they, are they lazy? Were they not show up for work on time? Um, were they uh, just depressed economy? What's the deal? I really believe they're poor because of their connection to Jesus, okay? So in Hebrews chapter 10, listen, listen to the situation of these folks, which would have been the same time period as, as those that John is writing to. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you had yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. I think we as Americans, man, we don't have a category for someone doing that to us, do we? Someone coming in and saying, oh, you, you worship, you're one of those Christians? You won't, you won't say Caesar is Lord? You're, a, you're an atheist? That's what they call them, atheist. Because <laughs> they worship Jesus. They didn't worship all the gods of the Roman pantheon or, or the emperor. And they said, no, th- those aren't God. We won't worship. No, you're an atheist. We're taking your house. Get out. It's ours. We're taking your field. We're taking your business. We're taking your possessions. We're taking what is yours. They were, they were a poor church. They were a martyred church. See what Jesus says in verse 10? He says, Some of you will be thrown into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Death. Remember two years ago? Pastor Sanjeevi, one of the pastors in the India network that we work with, opens his door to some folks who say we, we'd like for a pastor to pray with us. He steps out and they stab him to death. Three months ago, 21 Christians, Coptic Christian men, are lined up on a beach in Libya in red jumpsuits and are beheaded by ISIS. Three days ago, Twelve Christians crossing the Mediterranean in a boat full of Muslims are thrown overboard in the Mediterranean Sea and killed. This was a martyred church. So, ask yourself, okay, so if your church is under tribulation and persecution and being slandered and impoverished and martyred, what, do, what does that church need to see about Jesus? Remember, the answer is look at Jesus. Look at him. Look at who he is. Okay, what, what do they need to see? What do they need to know? Verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of, who is Jesus? The first and the last who died and came to life. All right, you see, you see if, if you're this church, you, you need to hear 
that Jesus is the first and last. There's nothing before him and there'll be nothing after him. He's the eternal reality of the universe. He will never go out of style. He will never break down. He will never go old or weak. A slandered church needs to hear and know Jesus has the last word, okay? He's the first and the last. A church being murdered needs to see that Jesus died and came to life. A poverty-stricken church needs to see that Jesus owns it all. He's the first. He's the last. He is rich beyond comparison. A church being told that they what they believe doesn't matter. They need to know that Jesus is the only thing that will ultimately matter. He is the first and he is the last. For those saints on that beach in Libya who were beheaded and their life was ended, they do know that Jesus will have the last word there. Huh? They know that, they, that Christ will come again. He, he is the living one and he will, he will raise their bodies imperishable and he will exalt them to be glorified with him in heaven and their persecutors. They will tremble under the blazing gear of the eternal almighty God. Jesus is the first and he's the last. Now what, what does this church hear? So they don't get any rebuke. They don't have any correction. But they, they do have commands, okay? So what, what does Jesus tell a church that's about to go through severe persecution? Well, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Now, sometimes we say don't fear because something is not scary, right? I mean, you got to tell your kids that sometime, right? They'll be scared of something. You're like, oh, no, come on, you know, come on. It's it's okay. We were at the soccer field uh, yesterday, and there was a big lab, and and Haven's like, can I go pet the dog? And Haven's like, sure, go pet. It's okay. And she's kind of timid. No, it's okay. He's a nice dog. She goes there, pets a little bit. Then the dog's like, you know, like maybe there was something to fear, you know? Sometimes, sometimes we say don't fear because, you know, hey, it's not scary. All right, that, that's not why Jesus is saying don't fear. I mean, there's something real to fear here. But fear is, fear is dangerous in a believer. Why is it dangerous in a believer? We're told not to fear all the time in the Bible. Well, it's because fear can swallow up and push out faith. Fear can demonstrate that, that the threats of men are bigger to us than the character of Jesus. And so Jesus tells this church, do not fear. Now, why? Well, we're going to look at that the rest of the sermon here. Several things here. We're going to look at what Jesus says about the church, about himself, about what's going to happen that should, should bring some comfort to this church that's about to be thrust into such tribulation. First thing, number one, though they are poor, verse 9 Jesus says that they are rich. So, verse 9 says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. But you are rich. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that the, 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 the Bible has described Christians in this way. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. First Peter chapter 1. Verses uh, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Listen to this. You're, You're resurrected. You're born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
So which is it? Are you poor or are you rich? Were the Smyrna Christians, are they poor or are they rich? Which is the case? Well, if you ask their neighbors, they're going to say they're poor. Those guys, man, they don't have nothing. You see how skinny they are? You know, if you, if you, if you look at the economic survey of Asia Minor, man, they're going to say these folks are at the bottom, you know? If you look at their bank accounts, they've got this much and everybody else has got this much. I mean, they're, they're at the bottom. If you ask their unbelieving family and friends, they're going to say, oh, they're ridiculously stupid. They had a bunch. They had a great life, but their faith has caused them to lose everything. Yet Jesus says they're rich. Now, how do, you, how do you reconcile those two? Everybody else saying they're poor. Jesus saying they're rich. Well, here's what it's got to be. Okay, being rich is having a lot of something valuable. Do we all agree about that? Being rich is having lots of valuable things. Okay, so now the question becomes, what do you see as valuable? So what's valuable? How do you determine what's valuable, by the way? Let me give you my criteria. I would say that valuable things are things that bring about true blessing, satisfaction, joy, peace, contentment, opportunity, provision, future, hope. Those would be my definition of value, okay? So, so what, what, what kind of things bring value? Well, is it money, cars, electronics, homes, pools, savings accounts? Are, are those the things that bring Blessing, satisfaction, joy, peace, true content. I mean, sometimes, right? I, I, a little bit, right? So you have electronics, you have you have a, a phone, you know, that you can get text messages and, and you can you can get on uh, and look at the weather. Okay, well, that's a little bit, right? Okay, but let me ask you this. Is everybody who has phones, are they happy? Everybody has phones, no depression. Everybody has phones, no contentment. Everybody, no contentment. You got kids and they got a phone. Are they completely content? Okay. Man, it's starting to unravel here a little bit. Okay. How about homes? I think most all of you have homes. Do homes bring true blessing, joy? If you have a home, man, your, your family is just, whoo, everybody's awesome, happy. Well, maybe not. Okay. And so maybe that begins to unravel. And so what, what is truly valuable? What truly brings those things? Could it be that things like forgiveness, things like a heart transformation, to have your heart change on the inside out so that you're no longer irritable and discontent and full of anxiety and full of angst toward other people, to have your heart change? What, 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 what about having Jesus give you life, being connected to the power of the Spirit of God, being justified before the Father, being adopted into His family, having the new heavens and the new earth and fullness of joy and pledges forever as your hope? How about being tethered to, joined to, connected to the King of the universe who is glory. Could that be real value? I think so. And so Jesus says, you're rich. But again, look at me. That's what he's saying. Look at me. Remember who I am. See who I am. Look at me. Number two, Jesus says, you're rich. Number two, he says, you're being tested. You ever wonder what's going on when the bottom falls out of your life? What's going on when, when trials and struggles come? What, what's happening? Well, Jesus tells them right away, you're being tested. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Now, you might say, no thanks. I, I don't want the test. I, I'm, I'm opting out of the test. Well, 
The Bible says the test is valuable. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, listen. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, did you hear what Peter just said there? Peter just said that the tested genuineness of our faith is valuable, okay? So he's saying that when we are tested, it, it, it is shown that we are genuine, that we have the real deal, that we're truly a believer. How do you know? Are you really connected to Christ this morning? Do you have the Holy Spirit inside of you? Or the new hope of the heaven, the new hope and, and, and new heavens and new earth, is that yours? How do you know? Well, you know when you're tested, right? Pastor Andrew brought this, bought this the other day. Uh, actually, it's been a year or so. And uh, I'm not sure where he got it. I don't know where he got it. Um, but he bought it for something we were doing. And uh, he had it in his office. He gave it to me for when we were doing Pilgrim's Progress. And so I've kept it in my office. I think I'm going to keep it because I like having it in my office. Sometimes when Paul is not, not performing at a high rate, I pull it out, you know, and threaten. One of the things I wonder, is it real? Is it real? Okay, now, you know what I mean by that, right? Like, like, could you take this dude into Braveheart, you know, and, ah, you know, I mean, well, is it real? Would it, hold, it looks like a sword. It's, it's metal. Feels like a sword. I mean, as far as I know, this is the only price sword I've ever held. But, you know, it, it seems like it's real. But is it real? Well, you don't know that until you test it. Right? That's the only way to know that. I was in my office the other day, and I had a cardboard box sitting on my, my chair, and I had my sword. And uh, the flap was up, and I just took it, and not very hard. It's not mine, so I hated to, you know, break it. But I just took it like this, and I, I just, like, chopped on that, you know. And, man, like, one chop, it, like, five inches into the cardboard, you know. And then I, I kind of took it, and I poked at the cardboard, you know. <laughs> See if it, and it went, you know, it's like, right in. I mean, hardly any pressure at all, you know. But that's not really a test, is it? Cardboard, I mean, come on, that's not a shield or another sword and here's what i concluded i'm we're never going to know this is real. I, I think probably what daniel's listening i know i know daniel i know what he's thinking we're going to test it this week you know <laughs> i mean the only way to know would be to get like a piece of plywood or some kind of heart you know and take this dude and, ah, you know and just heart you know and what's going to happen you know i kind of got a feeling the blade will come off back into my head it's like <laughs> Which is probably why I'm not going to be the tester, okay? But who knows? I mean, it might be the real, it's heavy. It might be the real deal. It might, you know, put a big old gash in that plywood and come out just fine. But you don't know until it's tested. Is your faith real? Well, you, you don't know until it's tested. How does your faith respond to tests? How does it respond to adversity? How does it respond to difficulty? How does it respond to tough relationships? How does it respond to those things? 1 Peter 4, I was reminded of this verse at the conference this week. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I am seeing this happen on a weekly basis. got lots of older people here today and and here's what i would ask of you and I, I would ask of you to pray 
for the younger generation of Christians, okay? Because here's the reality. In the last 100, 200 years, we have lived in a beautiful time, have we not? Uh, Not that we haven't had adversity and trials and struggles, world wars, all of that true, true. But we've lived in a country in which you could stand for truth and you could stand for biblical values. And many times, most of the time, you were often applauded. You were often supported. But here's what we're seeing. In the last 25 years, the culture has changed about like this. In the last five years, the culture has changed about the same amount. In other words, when I saw the statistics on it this week, when you look at people's convictions about different moral issues, it, it, would, it took about 25 years for them to get from here to here. And then the last five years, they've gone the same distance in five. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I'm not telling you. But I know that I'm hearing stories almost on a weekly basis from our church. Their family is saying, why are you being that way? Why are you saying those things? Why are you believing that? You're ruining our family. You're ruining Christmas. It could be coming. I don't know. But Jesus said, Peter said, in 1 Peter, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you're following Christ and people are not happy about that. I I think you have to accept that's okay. Jesus says it's 10 days. It's limited. Okay? I want to point that out. We'll just spend a second here. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Now, Ten days could be ten literal days. I mean, that's kind of my rule in the Bible is I take it literal unless there's a good reason not to. Uh, However, this is in the book of Revelation and and much symbolic stuff in Revelation, right? Numbers tend to be somewhat symbolic, sevens, tens. So it could be uh, just a long period of time, could be, you know, some, I, I don't know. But the point, it doesn't really matter. The point is this, Jesus is saying, what you're gonna go through is, is limited by me. Right? We saw that in Job, didn't we? Who, who afflicted Job? Satan. Who afflicted these Christians? Their synagogue of Satan, right? The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. It's clear. Who's doing this? The devil, Satan, evil, the world, okay? But who has put a fence? Jesus. Okay? Ten days. Be faithful unto death. There's the command. Verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. All right, so what is he saying there? No limits. No limits on, on, on your trusting Christ, clinging to Christ, hoping in Christ, depending upon his word, standing upon his truth. There, there's no limits. That's what he's saying. Church at Smyrna, here's your challenge. Here's what's coming. And you, you have no limits to your trusting and depending on me. All right, so let's work this out, okay? So, so what's he saying here? Well, basically, think about a testing line, okay? So here we are. We're on our line. Let's come back to our original verse. You could use a bunch of them, but let's use Psalm 63.3. Because your steadfast love is better than life. 
So my lips will praise you, right? So God, your love is better than life, right? My lips are going to praise you. Okay, so I'm right here. It's a sunny day. Man, I got my two little girls in the back, and they're singing songs on the way to school. And I'm saying, God, your steadfast love is better than life. So I'm going to praise you. Okay, great. Okay, but that's faithful unto prosperity, okay? So what about when I move here, okay? I had this happen the other day. Uh, one of the vehicles was broke down, and Emma had the other one in the city. So I, I got the kids to school on the scooter, which it, it wasn't a, it would seem like a great idea, except that particular day was like 38 degrees and windy, all right? So I wrapped one of them up, helmet on, there we, there we go, come back, get the other one, you know, all right? So your steadfast love is better than life. So my, is it still better? God, in inconvenience, in a little bit of adversity, is it better than life? Let's take another step. Irritable people in your life. Man, jabbing you, poking you. You're on a committee. Everybody else believes something you don't believe for the church. You know, you're working with folks in a ministry and they're not pulling their end of the rope and it all gets dumped on you. Is a steadfast love better than life? When there's irritation or struggle? How about when there's real loss? You know what's interesting? There's people in America that have been Christians their whole life and they've never, never had to go past there. Praise God, huh? I mean, haven't we lived in an incredible time? But how about when your faith caused you to have your stuff taken? Worked all your life for retirement. Someone comes in and takes it because you're a Christian. When you're slandered? What about when you're imprisoned? What about when you're beaten? What about unto death? Okay, so here's the question. When do we get off the line? Be faithful unto? Honestly, some folks are off at the first step. I mean, really. Be faithful unto, I've had a bad day. You know, things haven't gone my way. It's been frustration all day and... Jesus isn't good. Not reading my Bible. Boy, he slipped off quick, you know. Or maybe they're faithful unto irritation. What about faithful unto conflict with people? How many folks have left a church? Someone made them mad. That's literally, that's all it took. That's all it took. And we're not talking about imprisonment, lose your stuff. We're just talking about that guy brought a sword on stage. That ticked me off, you know. I'm out. How about, how about with slander? How about when they're saying bad things about you? Are you still faithful? Unto death. Be faithful unto death. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. I like this verse. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Jesus says quickly, those who are faithful unto death, he'll give to them the crown of life. You know, I just think there's a basic principle in, in Scripture that you can't outgive God, you know? I mean, you can't outgive him. You know, you go all the way to death, and what's he do? And he crowns you with life, 
with eternal life, fullness of life, pleasures forevermore. For those who conquer. Notice verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now here's what I want to ask myself. Who, how do I conquer? Because obviously conquer means I'm faithful all the way. Nothing, nothing knocks me off the faithfulness line. I'm, I'm, I'm serving Jesus, loving Jesus, convinced He's the best, following His Word, trusting Him. And conquering means nothing knocks me off. I go all the way to the end. How, how do we conquer? Well, let's read the verse again. He who has an ear, this is verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You, you know how we make it to the end? By hearing Jesus' word. This is what equips you. This is what prepares you. Is it, isn't God good here where, where he knows what this church is going to go through? So what's he doing right now? Jesus is sending word to his church. He's sending, this is who I am. Look at me, I'm the first and the last. I, 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 I was dead and I came to life. That's who I am. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. He's given him his, he's given him his word. And, and those who have ears to hear, those, again, we talked about this last week, those who are responders to the word of God, they, they, not, only, they not only hear it, they, they obey it, they embrace it, they love it. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And the one who conquers, last, last verse there, Last line, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Did you know there are two deaths? Okay, the first death is the one you shouldn't be afraid of. Okay, it's your physical death. It's your temporary separation of body and soul. So when you die, if you're a believer, body stays, and you go to be with Christ. Okay, Paul said, I'd rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So you go to be with Him. What's that like? Last, last month, you memorized it. Psalm 1611. What's it like to be in the presence of God? Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, right? That's what it's like, okay? Now, what's the second death? Well, the second death separates body and soul from God. So first death separates body and soul. But if you're a believer, you just go to be with Christ. Second death separates body and soul of unbelievers from God, right? So if you live in such a way that you say, God, I'm not interested in you, you're not the big deal to me. I'm not trusting you. I'm trusting myself. I'm doing my own thing. Okay, essentially what you're saying is I don't want you, God. And so the second death, God gives you what you want. You don't want him. You don't want to be with him. So where is the place that God is not? Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Okay, those who showed by their life. I don't trust you, Jesus. I don't trust you. Habitually, I don't trust you. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I don't think Jesus is in any way belittling what these believers are about to endure in being martyred for Christ. But I think he is comparing the smallness of the first death to the eternally horrific second death. 
So, Jesus knows what this church is going to go through. Now, did, did that happen? Did they go through that? Well, I was eating uh, lunch with my, my daughter Avery on Thursday. It was her birthday, and so I took her out for lunch. And she was telling me about Polycarp. She's been reading about Polycarp. If, if you know your church history, you know Polycarp was a famous um, martyr, famous bishop. Uh, and uh, so she, she'd been reading a book at school. They'd had some kind of school assignment where she was reading about Polycarp. And uh, things started clicking in my mind. Guess who Polycarp was? He was the bishop of, does anybody know? Smyrna. This town. Bishop of Smyrna. When did he die? 155 A.D. It is recorded for us by the, the historian Eusebius. Okay? So you, you do the numbers on this. Okay, John is writing at the end of the first century. He's about 90, okay? So somewhere around 95, 100, 105 A.D., okay? Polycarp dies at 155. We know for certain because of his testimony of how it's recorded, because he says his age, that he was at least 86 years old. Polycarp was at Smyrna when this letter was written. Isn't that cool? How'd Polycarp die? I'll shorten the version for you. They come to his house to arrest him. He asks for an hour to pray. They grant him that. He prays for an hour. They take him. They drag him into the, into the uh, stadium, the arena. The crowd is calling for his life. The proconsul asks him whether he's Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say down with the atheist. Now, now did you catch it? Who does he say the atheists are? The, the Roman guy? He says the Christians are the atheists. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium. And gesturing toward them, he said, down with the atheist. The Roman proconsul took pity on such a gentle old man and urged Polycarp to proclaim Caesar as Lord. If only Polycarp would make his declaration and offer a small pinch of incense to Caesar's statue, he would escape torture and death. To this, Polycarp responded, 86 years I've served Christ and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Steadfast in his stand for Christ, Polycarp refused to compromise his beliefs, and thus he was burned alive at the stake. When they f- went to fix him with nails, they would nail them to the stake so that they would not fall off as they were being burned. He said to them, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. And he did. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. There's one guy among probably many in this church who did just that. Church, where are you faithful unto? Are you faithful unto death? Or are you faithful unto something else? Unto inconvenience? Unto irritation? Under resistance, under persecution, what are you faithful unto? What's Jesus worth to you? I want you to look at him. He's the first and he's the last. He's the one who died and is alive forevermore. Father, help us. 
God, help us, Father, to see our lives in perspective. God, I pray, Father, that as we are, are dealt even small and minor inconveniences, that we would honor you, God, that we would honor you in faithfulness, that we would honor you in holding on to you and trusting you and depending upon you and treasuring you. God, forgive us when we so quickly fall away. Father, help us to be faithful unto death. Put that in us, Lord. Feed us your word and strengthen us with it that we might be strong for the challenges that lie ahead for us as a church. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name.